0: Our Bibles are open to Deuteronomy chapter number 7 again this morning. I'm going to come back to chapter 7 and deal with the subject that several weeks ago as we began our study in Deuteronomy, I told you I'd be coming back to as a passage that we looked at in chapters 2 and and chapters 3 that deals particularly with Israel as a nation engaging in warfare and how they were to do that. And you'll remember that there were a couple of important battles against Sihon and Og that Uh, were important to set the people up on the eastern side of the Jordan River in strategic locations that would properly position them to invade into the land of Canaan, what we better know as the promised land, the land that God had promised to his people through their forefather Abraham. And God gives the people, of course, a very challenging command then uh, that he explains, Moses does, a little bit further in the passage that we'll read here again this morning, that oftentimes can be very troubling uh, to a lot of people. So we're going to deal for a few minutes today with one of the thorniest issues in the Bible. So I need everybody set up straight and listen with both eyes this morning, because this may be the only time in the rest of my ministry career that I deal with this subject Uh, It's a major stumbling block to a lot of people. Many people by the multiplied thousands come to passages like this, and they categorically want to keep God at arm's length. Many people will, in fact, reject the God of the Bible uh, right out of hand because of what they read here, and they view it uh, as coming from a God that they simply cannot follow if this commandment be true. Well, it is true. And let me just say this morning, while this wouldn't necessarily be my first choice for a Lord's Day message, I do think that it's obvious enough that if I skipped right on over it, y'all would call me a coward and everything in between. And so I am not a preaching coward, somebody say amen, Amen. and so I'm going to deal with it humbly. Uh, And let me just say from the beginning, I'm probably not going to iron all the wrinkles out. This is a troubling passage. Can I just say that from the very beginning? And if you've got human blood coursing through your Bible, you're going to probably approach it as a troubling passage, just like I do. Um, But I think that there's some reasons given in the biblical record why this command that we're going to look at was necessary. And they are reasons, I think, that significantly help soften the blow of what is otherwise a most troubling command, what many people would describe as the most troubling command of God in the Bible Summed up in a single phrase, you must devote them to complete destruction. Now having said that, uh, I think it's important to look at the total passage. So let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's word and we'll read together the first six verses of Deuteronomy chapter number seven. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And Father, we're very, very grateful that in your sovereignty, you chose a people holy unto yourself, for they are our spiritual ancestors even to this day. We, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, continue to be a holy people, a chosen people, a people belonging to God. And how grateful we are for that special status that you give to us. Father, teach us this morning something about you, something about your holiness, something about your sovereignty that we're desperate to know even in times like these. For many continue to be lost. There are many, many, many multiplied millions of Canaanites by other name even throughout the world today. May we remember them as we treasure the gospel and serve as great commission people with that precious message of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray and all God's people said amen and amen. Thank you, church family. You all can be seated. What's at issue in this passage here today is what theologians call the harem, H-E-R-E-M, the harem, which is the Hebrew word that's translated into English, devote to complete destruction. Sometimes you'll hear that concept of harem in the Hebrew referred to in English as the ban, which is much simpler B A N, it's the ban. The idea that everything that was to be conquered was banned from being possessed by the Israelites as the conquering nation. Nothing was to be kept, everything was to be destroyed. And everything was to be completely devoted to God. And that's what that concept means. It means to offer it totally to God. Now, let me just say this morning, this wasn't always the directive when it came to war. This wasn't always the directive that God gave uh, to the people of Israel. There were times that God did not tell them to devote to complete destruction all of the enemy armies that they would uh, be facing. There were times where God told them, you can have the spoils of war. This, by the way, is how Abraham became a very wealthy man. He became wealthy in large part because he was victorious in battle, and he brought the spoils of war into his own household. So we need to understand that at the very beginning, this wasn't always the direction that God gave to his people when it came time to fight. But he does here with respect to when it came time to enter into the promised land. When it came time for God's people to enter the land of promise, things were now different. Uh, Everything was to be destroyed. Everything was to be in that idolatrous pagan land, completely devoted to God. And that's what's most troubling to us, honestly, because on the surface, to most of us, that seems rather horrifying it seems unjust it seems unfair and people want to know how do we explain it how do we reconcile that with a God of compassion and love and mercy well let me give you my best take on it this morning Is that okay with everybody and I'm already going to tell you because I don't know I don't have the mind of God and I'm just in troubled by some of this as everybody else people who don't even know the Lord Jesus Christ And I may not be able to clear the waters up completely and iron every single wrinkle out, but I think that as we look at the pages of Scripture, the Bible itself provides us a bit of clarity, which I think would be very helpful, uh, because you need to know this. This wouldn't be my first choice of Sunday morning messages, and so why do I even do it? Why not just reserve this for our small group discussions? Well, because I've heard a lot of stuff comes out of small group discussions. And some of it's not always biblical. And because you as God's people are going to run into people at your offices and your neighborhoods and your places of business that are going to come right over here. And they're going to say, why in the world should I follow what you're trying to get me to do and worship a God like that? And you need to be able to know what to say as best you can. So let me give you about four things uh, to remember with that in mind this morning. And the first is I do think it's important to remember that this command reflects the sovereignty of God and can I remind everybody he's sovereign God and no human being is amen there are things God knows that we will never know the Bible paints the ways of God in mysterious ways sometimes and God moves in very mysterious ways And he's infinite, and we're finite, and there are things that God does and ways that God moves throughout history and ways that he moves spiritually that finite human beings can never completely understand. There are things that God knows that we don't know today or through eternity. The Bible clearly presents God in those terms. He is the living God. He is creator God of the universe. He is Lord Of heaven and earth and there's not a believing soul in this room today that would argue with that this is the way for example that when it came time to preach to the Athenian elders uh, at Paul's Areopagus sermon in Athens Acts chapter 17 and just about three weeks ago I stood on the Areopagus and there was nobody on it but me and my son and I just preached the gospel to him he didn't know what was going on but I stood in that very place and remember these guys were pagans Paul didn't do as he normally did and start with the Scripture because they didn't care anything about Scripture and didn't know anything about it. He starts with the sovereign God, creator God of heaven and earth, and notice what he says in Acts 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself watch this, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God is a sovereign God. All life comes from God. The Lord giveth, and the Bible says the Lord taketh away. Blessed, hallelujah, to the name of the Lord our God. The problem with many of us is rather than submitting to God and letting God shape us into his image, sometimes we want God to submit to us And we live by trying to make God shaped into our image. We try to impose our understanding of life and death and good and and evil and all of that onto God. And so we want to impose our understanding of what's right and just and fair onto him. But can I say this morning, that's hugely presumptuous on our part. And you need to be very careful about imposing your will and your understanding about what's fair and what's not on a sovereign God who made heaven and earth and everything in it. That's a very dangerous thing. Listen, God created everything. And the Bible teaches that God is Lord over everything. And you know what? God also, as sovereign creator God, Lord over everything, has the right to manage everything according to his divine wisdom and his divine purpose. This was true, for example, when it came uh, time to choose a people holy unto himself. This is exactly true when it comes to God's choice of Israel as his unique, special, holy nation. And people can carp and complain all they want to, as to why God chose Israel and not this nation state or that nation state or any other nation state or their nation state. They can carp and complain all they want to as to why God chose Israel and not somebody else. But I'm saying here that it's not for us to decide. That's not in our purvey. That's God's sovereign choice. The earth is the Lord's and all who dwell in it the world, and everyone therein. So it's God's sovereign choice. God is sovereign over his choice of people. And God is sovereign over how he uses people. Paul made that point to the elders of Athens as well. Acts 17, 26. God made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Having, and what's the next word? Say it out loud. Having determined allotted periods and the what? Say it out loud. The boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. So there you see it again. God is sovereign over His choice of people, God is sovereign over His choice of rulers. God is sovereign over how he uses people. And never forget, there's often a bigger picture that God sees in his sovereignty that you and I will never be able to completely see, that we in our limited finiteness can't always comprehend. Can I say this morning that the occupation of the promised land, the land of Canaan, now known as the land of Israel, the occupation of the promised land, was by God's own decree a divine right for the nation of Israel. From the time that God made a covenant with Abraham, God's intention was to settle that people within the boundaries of that land, the land we know as the promised land, or sometimes we refer to it as a holy land. And again, because God's sovereign, can I just say it this morning? God's entitled to give any land on planet earth, the land that he may. God's entitled to give any part of this creation to anybody he wants to give it to. And for Israel, are y'all still with me? Say amen. For Israel as a holy nation, to inhabit a holy land, the pagan inhabitants of that land had to go. Couldn't be a holy land with unholy people all over it from top to bottom. You say, well, that's such a severe action. Yes, it is. But God knew best. God's on his throne. God is sovereign. And God deemed it a necessary action for his redemptive plan through his redemptive people to be fully accomplished. God may not always move in ways that we like or ways that we understand But let me say it again, God is the one who's sovereign and you and I are not. And he always moves, even when we don't understand it, God always moves in ways that are right and in ways that are just. It's like what Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 9. So then God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. But who are you, O man, to answer back? To God. That's a good word to hear again this morning, isn't it? Amen. That's the whole point. God is sovereign and we are not, and no human being has a right to shake his fist at God or her fist at God and accuse God of being unjust or unfair. Everybody with me so far? Say amen. Amen. A second thing I think that is worth mentioning about this command is that it addresses a specific situation. In other words, it's limited. It's not global. Does that makes sense? It addresses a very specific situation. And the specific situation that we're dealing with here in the book of Deuteronomy, and then certainly later on the book of Joshua, is the migration of Israel into the promised land. This is the specific occasion around which God gives this command. And outside of these passages in Deuteronomy, and ones like it in the book of Joshua, in no other place in Scripture does God command this kind of an approach to war. That's why passages like these can't be used in a universal kind of way. They can't be used to justify occupying foreign lands today. They can't be used uh, as uh, as a, a foundation for unjustly taking human life on a mass scale in unjustified kinds of wars, as they certainly have been in the past. There was no carte blanche for Israel to take this kind of approach haphazardly throughout the rest of her future, anywhere, at any time. In fact, I think it's an interesting thing to consider that later on, when it came time for Israel to build a permanent temple, a permanent dwelling place, you know, up till the time the temple, first temple was built by Solomon... Uh, the dwelling place of God in terms of worship was concerned was the tabernacle. And so when it came time for a permanent house to be built in the city of God, city of David, uh, Jerusalem, is it not interesting that David was precluded as king from being the one to build the temple? And why was David not allowed by God to build a temple? Because his kingship was marked by what? By, isn't that ironic? If God is this bloodthirsty God, And yet, when it came time for a king to be designated as the one to build the house of God, the mighty King David was precluded. God said, no, it's not going to be you because you've been a king of war. And he gave the responsibility to Solomon. You may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. That just doesn't make any sense at all if God is this bloodthirsty kind of God that many want to paint him to be. What I want you to see right here is the specific nature of the command. Where God was teaching something very important to his people at a very critical stage in their development as the people of God. God was wanting to teach them something about holiness. Namely about his holiness. And about their holiness. God wanted to teach them something about faithfulness about his faithfulness to them as his chosen people and about the importance of their faithfulness to him as a covenant people. He wanted to teach them something very important about idolatry and the inevitable consequences of idolatry. And he's doing that, of course, again, at the very beginning of their life together as a people in this brand new land, a land that he had promised them from the very beginning. And God often works that way in Scripture at these strategic beginning points in the life of his people. These are unique circumstances, not long-term, not universal. They don't establish a pattern. They're unique, and they usually uh, occur at beginning points. The same thing happens at the beginning stages of the church in the book of Acts. Everybody in here remembers what happens with the, the couple known as Ananias and Sapphira, right? Well, they committed the sins of hypocrisy and the sin of duplicity. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to God. And what did God do? Struck them dead right there. And listen, you ought to be very grateful that that was kind of a one-time gig. because I'm pretty sure there are people in the house that have been duplicitous to the church. Pretty sure there are people in the house that haven't lived holy, hypocritical, living one way obviously and a different way behind the scenes. I'm telling you, if, if that had been a pattern, we'd all be dead. Somebody say amen so it's a similar kind of thing these are critical starting points and God is trying to drive something into the life of his covenant people namely that he takes sin very seriously and sin will always be judged and they teach us too how serious God is about holiness and about his people as the scripture will later say being holy for he the Lord our God is what holy so Contrary to how this passage has been used in the past and how it might even be used by some tyrants today, this, this passage does not serve as justification to target any people for annihilation. As with the Crusades, as with the Holocaust, whatever the case might be, regional ethnic cleansing in Eastern Europe. No, this was an action against a specific people at a specific time for A specific purpose and speaking of purposes one of these purposes was third to protect God's people this was a commandment that was meant to protect the people of God again God's got his chosen people at the forefront of his mind and that's why when you read passages like this you ought not just be concerned about what's happening to the enemy you ought to be concerned about what God is trying to do to his people And how God is trying to set his people up for long-term success, missionally, in terms of worship and every other part of their life together as the people of God. The elimination of the Canaanites from the Holy Land or from the land of promise was a necessary step. But it was only one of many steps in what theologians call God's redemptive history the history of salvation, in order for Israel to achieve all the goals that God had for her as a people, to be a lighthouse for the world, a blessing to the nation, man, they needed to start with a clean slate. They needed to start with a holy land. And the land was anything but holy. The land was exactly the opposite of holy, truth be told. They needed to have a minimum of spiritual distractions. Because they were babes in God, man. They were infants in terms of what it meant to live for God. So God was well aware. Man, if these people at this stage of their development try to live alongside these Canaanites, all these ites that I successfully read a moment ago, if they try to live side by side with them, it's destruction. It's going to be nothing but a sad mess because they're going to become corrupted by the idolatrous practices of all the people that are living all around them. And y'all know, those of you that have read the Bible, y'all know that's kind of exactly what ended up happening because the nation of Israel never did drive them all out. We know that from reading the rest of the Old Testament. No, they had a better way. They thought they knew better than God. They didn't obey God all the way. And what happened? These people became, just as God said, thorns in their side, burrs in their saddle. Well, the scripture doesn't say that, but y'all know what I'm talking about. Same thing. Because they never obeyed the full command of God. They compromised. And their worship became corrupted by the worship of Baal, the worship of Asherah, all those foreign gods. And guess what happened to Israel because of it? They ended up being judged. Because of their disobedience. And here's the thing. Over the long haul, haul, there ended up being far more loss of life. Far more loss of life than would have happened if Israel had just obeyed God in the very beginning. Far more loss of life because of Israel's disobedience. Here's the thing I found about life, and you probably have too. Life in a fallen world doesn't always give you the option of choosing between something good and something bad. Sometimes the choice is between something bad and something worse. Isn't that right? Y'all ever been in that position before where you had to make a choice and there was no good choice. The choice was between painful and more painful. Somebody say amen. See, this this was the decision President Truman was faced with when he had to decide whether or not to drop the atomic bomb in 1945. There was no good choice. The choice was between painful and more painful. And that was what he weighed. Harry Truman was one of my favorite presidents. I remember Ed Sanford, who used to be one of our famous members. I was joking with him on a senior adult tour bus one time. And we uh, were at President Eisenhower's house. And uh, I made a joke to Ed, who was right in front of me. I had the mic in my hand, trying to be a comic. And I said, "Now, Ed Sanford here. You know, the thing about it is, he didn't vote for Eisenhower because he's a Democrat. He voted for Truman." And he said, "No, he, I said, "He voted for Adlai Stevenson." And I never forget. Ed piped up. He said, "I've never voted for a Democrat in my life, but if I had to do it over again, I'd vote for Truman." I'll never forget him saying that. Well, Truman had to weigh this decision, and he opted to drop the bomb, which I'm not arguing for or against. I'm simply using this as an illustration. But in his mind, he testified he never lost a wink of sleep over it because he knew his experts were telling him this war was going to go on indefinitely and people were going to die by the multiplied hundreds of thousands if the war continued. And so he chose between painful and more painful. And he said he felt like he made the right decision and he never lost a wink of sleep about it. Sometimes life presents you with those kinds of choices. And sometimes I feel like when we read passages like this, that's what it feels like. It's a choice not between good and bad, but between painful and more painful from our perspective, though not from God's. Bottom line, this command was given at a specific time for a specific purpose that involved the spiritual protection and long-term fruitfulness of the people of God in the land that God had promised to give to them. Everybody tracking with me so far? Say amen. There's a fourth thing. And that is that this command not only serves to protect the people of God, but it was in fact A judicial action on the enemies of God. It was God's judgment. And it's like nobody else ever seems to complain about other acts of God's judgment in the Bible except for this one. But this is similar to the rest of the acts of God's judgment in that it's an act of judgment. And by the way, remember, that's exactly how Paul preached the God of the Bible to the Athenian elders. He is judge of all the earth as well as creator. He is creator, he is sustainer, he is ruler, and God is judge. And this command reflects that God is using the nation of Israel to carry out what amounts to divine judgment on the idolatry and on the perversion of the Canaanites who were living in the land. Can I just make a statement this morning? Are all still with me? Say amen. The Canaanites were not a bunch of innocent flower children holding hands, singing kumbaya, and preaching a gospel of peace, love, and joy. They were wicked people engaged in ritual prostitution as acts of worship, offering their children And the sacrificial fires to Molech and Dagon and all of these other pagan gods, they were guilty of blatant idolatry and personal perversion in the worst kinds of way. And these sins, of course, the Bible teaches in other places were so offensive to God, so detestable to God. It says in the book of Leviticus that the land needed to vomit them out of its mouth. So in a very real sense, Israel becomes the judging arm of God on a sinful, immoral people. It's not the first time that's happened in the Bible. Listen, was judgment not the purpose of the great flood during the time of Noah? We're like everybody, but Noah's family was wiped out. Everybody. Why? Because the earth was totally given over to corruption. Anti-God, and God who is a holy God just won't countenance that. He's patient, but his patience is not infinite. And God judged the entire earth. Or what about Sodom and Gomorrah? Papah. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, the worst kind of immorality, gross immorality. And God saved a remnant, Lot, who, listen, and that's compassion and grace of God, Because last time I checked, Lot was as sorry a Lot as ever been in the Bible. And yet God had mercy on him, saved a remnant out of there, but he judged Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. Sometimes God uses judgment with natural disasters. Other times God judges using other people. And can I say this morning, once again, God is an equal opportunity judge. He makes clear to Israel, there's going to be a price to pay with you. If you ever go their way, I'll do the same thing with you as I did with them because I'm a holy God and I cannot countenance sin. If you ever adopt these practices, you'll pay a price. And why do you think, brothers and sisters, there's so much teaching by Moses in Deuteronomy? Never forget God. Remember his goodness. Be faithful. Obey God completely. Fear the Lord. Love the Lord. Serve the Lord. Obey the Lord. Why is all that in Deuteronomy? Because God will not tolerate consistent sin. And God had already demonstrated that with his people. That being the case. You go back to Exodus 32. Y'all remember the story of the golden calf? What did God do? He pronounced a word of judgment over his people. Struck the camp with plague. And then you come over to number 16. And certain amount of the people had rebelled against God. What did God do? Literally formed a fissure in the earth and swallowed 250 of his people whole in the earth. May I make a statement this morning? God doesn't play favorites. God doesn't play favorites. Not with the Canaanites, not with the Israelites, not with the Churchites. There are repeated warnings in the book of Deuteronomy. If you ever forget, if you ever forget, if you ever forget, if you ever forget, you'll suffer the same. The land will vomit you out of its mouth, which regrettably, regrettably, is exactly what happened in the long run. Now, what can we say in conclusion? I think it's important that we learn to judge the Bible and the God of the Bible in light of everything the Bible says about him. Not just one little sliver. We need to beware of the temptation of isolating, as so many people do, what we call proof texting, where you take one little sliver of Scripture out of its context And you use that one little sliver of Scripture to justify a definitive conclusion. Listen, this is how people end up handling snakes in church. Amen? You take one little sliver of Scripture and you build a whole thought process on it. you got to be very careful about doing that. This is why we encourage people, read the whole Bible. And people who often land on this passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy 7 and those like it throughout the book of Joshua They haven't read the whole Bible. They don't know all of God's redemptive history. And the Bible presents that. The Bible presents what W.A. Criswell used to call a scarlet thread of redemption that runs all the way through the Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, from creation all the way through the new heaven and the new earth. And this teaching about conquest warfare is just a part of that. It's a part of that scarlet thread of redemption that weaves its way all the way through the totality of Scripture. But it's only a part of it. We get into the New Testament, and we get into the teaching. I'm going to be doing some teaching through the Gospel of Matthew next year. And we'll get into the Sermon on the Mount and some of the wonderful teachings of of Jesus himself that make it very clear that things are different for the community of faith today. That was a specific issue at a specific time for a specific people for a specific purpose. God has purposes for His people today. We're no longer to kill our enemies, we're to pray for our enemies. Isn't that right? The Bible says we're to love our enemies, we're to bless those who persecute us, not kill them. These commands that we read in Deuteronomy and Joshua, unique, specific, did not represent a pattern for God's dealing with people and nations until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ any more than the Ananias and Sapphira story in the book of Acts represents an ongoing pattern of how God deals with sin in his local church today. And thank God for it. This is God's most troubling command for a lot of people. But here's the thing. I trust God's wisdom more than I trust my emotions in terms of how I interpret hard scriptures like these. And the fact is... When you come to a full understanding of the holiness of God, you'll realize that these Canaanites suffered a faith that all unredeemed sinners will still face. They just did it well ahead of time. The truth be told, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, his Savior and Lord, you're a a Canaanite. Truth be told, we're all Canaanites. Some of us are saved Canaanites and some of us are Canaanites destined for judgment. That's the truth. Sooner or later, apart from the grace and mercy of God that's found only in the blood of Jesus Christ, we're all going to suffer the judgment of a holy God. That's why you need to know Jesus. And that's why a lot of people just need to get off God's back. Amen. Because the fact is, we all deserve to die. Nobody deserves to be saved. We all deserve the justice of God. And the reality is, all of humanity is under a death sentence if we don't deal with the sin problem that keeps us separated from a God who is perfect and virtuous and holy in every respect. But thank God, this morning, the gospel presents us with a way of escape. We don't have to suffer the judgment of God. God is patient with us. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And thank God we can come to repentance through the way of escape. There is an ark of safety to redeem us from the flood. It's not a big boat. It's a big person whose name is Jesus Christ. And the scripture is just as true today as it ever has been. And we need to know it. And we need to preach it, we need to understand it, and we need to live as if it's true. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is God's holy and eternal word and all God's people said, Amen. amen and amen. Amen.